I want to read you a quote that Professor Burke is on his description at the Union College website. Whether you teach at the kindergarten level or you teach at the college level, to have an impact upon young people, there's nothing better than that. And that's what you do. You will affect their views forever on many of these subjects, including the one you're going to hear about today. Stephen Burke is a Henry and Sally Schaefer Professor of Holocaust and Jewish Studies, Director of the Russian and Eastern European Studies Program, <coughs> as well as a consultant to the Wiesenthal Holocaust Center in Los Angeles and many, many other organizations. His publications include Our People, Our Your People, American Jewry and the Struggle for Civil Rights, 1954 to 1965, Year of Crisis, Year of Hope, Russian Jewry and the Pogroms of 1881 and 1882, Russian Revolutionary Movement and the Pogroms, The Class Tragedy of Ishevsk. Very well done. <laughs> Working Class Opposition to Bolshevism in 1918. An expert on the Holocaust, Russia, and the Middle East, and a variety of subjects. He was given the Citizen Laureate Honor by Albany Foundation the Sidney Albert Albany Jewish Community Center Pillars of the Community Award with his wonderful wife, Roberta, as well as the Meritorious Service Award from Union College, and one that I'm very proud of, that in 2001, Holocaust Survivors and Friends Education Center gave him the Holocaust Memorial Award. You cannot get better than this. Thank you for joining us today. Anniversaries, Personalities, and the Contemporary Middle East how to share with your student, Professor Steve Burke. You have as long, you can go to 6.15 or whatever you want. You can stop and ask for uh, questions. Right. Thank you very much for coming. I, I know uh, this is a sleepy time for everyone. I, I know that. And I have taught in high school as well. Uh, you are the people, anybody who teaches K through 12 is really working hard. I must tell you that. I always felt uh, animosity towards that writer in Schenectady for the Schenectady Gazette, Carl Strzok, who used to take off after, after Israel, after Jews, and so on. But I began to dislike him when he took off after teachers. He used to say, they work, they don't work during the summer, they only work a few hours a day, and so on. To use the old Jewish language, that is absolute nourishkeit, that is stupidity and foolishness on his part. Now, it was said, I said about an attention spanning of four minutes, that was not meant condescendingly. It applies to me as well. I am one of those people, again, I'm too old, but I should have been put on Ritalin from the time I was born. So I have, again, to use the old language, I have what is called spielkus, I have ants in my pants. So I'm always ready to get up and jump. Now, I am not the prophet from Union College. I do not have a monopoly on the truth. I simply don't. We are talking about a very, very complex area, a controversial area. I will leave time for questions, and we can really get into it if you so desire. Let me begin by telling you that both Arabs and Jews have legitimate claims to the same piece of real estate. Their claims are based on different things, but they are legitimate. No side has a monopoly of the truth. No side is better than the other. The Arab claim goes back a thousand years, probably over a thousand years, 1,200 years, 1,400 years to be precise. Up until the early part of the 20th century, 
the Arabs constituted 90 to 95% of the population of that land which the Arabs call Philistine and which, of course, the Jews refer to as Eretz Yisrael. You cannot have a disparity, a majority in that country and not have a claim to that land. It is as simple as that. The Arab claim is based on almost 1,200 years of being an overwhelming majority in that land. The Jewish claim goes back a long time also. It goes back almost 3,000 years. For the Jews, this is the land of David and Solomon. This is the Jew, this is the, the land of the two temples. This is the land of the prophets. This is the land where the Jews made these major contributions in theology and in other areas to world civilization. And this is the area in which the Jews would have remained a majority in that land had they not done some very, very foolish things. I am, <laughs> Rabbi Lichtenfeld is here, her husband is my rabbi, I belong to a conservative synagogue, I am a very committed Jew, but I must tell you that the dumbest thing ever made, ever done in Jewish history, is to rise against Rome in the year 66 of the first century. Nobody in his right mind should have risen against Rome. The Jews did, they were clobbered, the temple would be destroyed. Then about 70 years later, they rose again, heroically in both cases. And again, they were slaughtered, they were exiled, and the Jewish population diminished very dramatically. And then, of course, in the 7th <laughs> century, the Arabs conquered Jerusalem. The Arabs will not forcibly convert large numbers of Jews, but what they will do is to employ a taxation policy that gave favorable status to those who were Muslims. And a number of Jews converted to Islam because of this. The one thing that Jews and Muslims have in common is that they were both slaughtered by the Crusaders in the 11th, in the 11th and 12th <coughs> centuries. In the modern period, in the modern period, one of the milestones in the creation of the State of Israel is to be found in that document that is in your booklet. That is the Balfour Declaration. This is the 100th anniversary of the Balfour Declaration. It was signed on November 2nd of 1917. It is in the form of a letter from the British Foreign Secretary Arthur Balfour <coughs> to the titular head of the Jewish community, Lionel Rothschild, Jewish community in the British Isles. And it runs something like this. You have it in front of you. I'll give you a paraphrase. It is my pleasure to inform you that His Majesty's government looks with favor upon the creation of a Jewish national home in Palestine. And it, of course, also provides for the fact that the civil and religious rights of the already existing population in Palestine should not be harmed, and because they were worried about a growth of anti-Semitism in Europe, the Jewish communities in other parts of Europe should not be harmed as well. It is often said that the Balfour Declaration was a colonialist act issued by the British government to defend its own interests. That is partially true. But the fact of the matter is, as we now know, as recent research has demonstrated, the Balfour Declaration is only made possible because the President of the United States, Woodrow Wilson, signs on. And because the government of France also signs on. This is not a unilateral declaration. It is a declaration, of course, that comes from the British government, but it could only have taken place 
if the French, the Italians, and in fact, believe it or not, when we talk about more history than you ever wanted to know, when we talk about the Balfour Declaration, everybody talks about Chaim Weizmann, but as some of you may know, the real hero, or at least the, the simultaneous hero of the Balfour Declaration, is a man that most people have never heard of, and that is Nachman Sakhalov. Sakhalov, again, a Zionist, believed that the Jews had a right. He goes to France, and he goes to Rome, where he, spokes with the, where he speaks with the Pope, and the Pope also agrees to the idea of a Jewish national home in Palestine. So this is not, a, let us say, a unilateral act. Why does something like this happen? It's a mixture of motivation, as so much in life is a mixture of motivation. For those of you, this is also, remember, from 2014 to 2018, is the 100th anniversary of World War I, the seminal event of the 20th century. In 1916, the British and the French were in desperate shape. I'll simply give you figures. This is not a course or a lecture on World War I, but it'll make the point to you. On one day, July 1st of 1916, that's the first day of the Battle of the Somme, the British sergeant majors blow their whistle. Over the top, lads, they go. In one day, in eight hours, the British will lose 60,000 men. Of the 60,000, 20,000 are dead. This is the greatest loss in all of British military history. And at the end, there will be 250,000 dead British soldiers, and they have advanced less than five miles. Simultaneously to the Battle of the Somme, is the Battle of Verdun that goes on for eight months. When it is over, the combined dead of French and German soldiers is over 450,000. There's a stalemate. The British have to get out of the stalemate. And here is where, perversely and paradoxically, some anti-Semitism works to the advantage of the Jews. The British were not the first, the British government, and they're not the last government in history to exaggerate Jewish power, wealth, and influence. The British want the United States in the war. The British want the Russians who have made their revolution to stay in the war. What better way to keep them in the war than to do something for the Jews? Because in Russia, it is believed, and in the United States, the Jews have such great power, they will convince Wilson to come into the war, and they will convince the Russian revolutionary government to stay in the war. That's Looney Tunes. But as I tell my students, and I hope that you're telling your students, in history and politics, perception is reality. It's not important what really happens. What is important is what people think happened. And the British think the Jews have that great power. In addition to that, the British are always thinking about what's going to happen after the war. They want to carve up the Ottoman Empire. And they want to make sure that the Jews of the world support their carving up of the Ottoman Empire, so you give the Jews a national home. And finally, it comes down to realpolitik and real geopolitics. A Jewish national home in Palestine will be an area from which the British, or in an area which the British can station troops and defend the Suez Canal and the lifeline to India. And finally, of course, we come to another how important this is, is a matter of debate among historians. There is something what historians <coughs> refer to, a phenomenon called Gentile Zionism. 
that is in the Jew in the non-Jewish community, particularly in Great Britain, there were people who said that if Jesus is to come again, the second coming, there is a tradition that all the Jews have to return to Palestine. There has to be a place for them. You get an echo of that today in the support that many evangelicals in our own country give to the support of Israel. Be careful with this one. Jews are always historically suspicious of evangelicals because the evangelicals are always ready to convert Jews. But for the evangelicals, there is a moderate position and an extremist position. The moderate position is Jesus will come again when all of the Jews return to Palestine. The extremist position is all of the Jews must not only return to Palestine, but they must accept Jesus as their Messiah. But again, I'm telling you to be careful with this. And I mention this to you, be careful with it, is because evangelicals are literalists. They're not the only religious people to be literalists. There are literalists within the Jewish community as well. And when it says in the book of Genesis, when God tells Abraham, those who bless you will be blessed and those who curse you will be cursed, there are many evangelicals that take that very, very seriously. You will be mentioned, you will be noted by God by the way you treat the Jews. <coughs> Again, this is not, of course, a lecture in theology. I'm simply saying to you that there are many reasons as to why the British are going to support a Jewish national home. Most historians say that while this is there, it's the geopolitics and the other factors that I indicate are more important. So here we are, but there's a problem in the Balfour Declaration. Now, if you are my students, and some of you are, it's nice to see those of you who are my students, particularly nice for me to know that you're still talking to me. <laughs> I have this terrible reputation at Union that I intimidate my students. My wife says to me very often, don't they know you're a pussycat? I really am. But they don't believe that. So, what I'm saying to you here is that in 1918, 1919, there were all sorts of things that were taking place here. Ah, uh, and, but there were problems in the Balfour Declaration. If you were my students, I, I would go and ask you, you've read it, what's the problem in the Balfour Declaration? But because we want to finish, this is not meant condescendingly, before Shavuos, which is a Jewish holiday that comes out in May, Usually in May, I'll answer my own questions. <laughs> His Majesty's government looks with favor upon the creation of a Jewish national home in Palestine. What does a national home mean? The world knows from states. It knows from colonies. What does a national home mean? And the issue, of course, is very relevant. Because if it's a state that is meant, then the state has sovereignty. Who has sovereignty in a national home? Do the British who, control, who really support it have made it possible? Do they have ultimate sovereignty? Or do the Jews in the national home, do they have sovereignty? <laughs> this is a life and death issue. Because what will happen will be, it is decided by the British in the national home, who control the national home, it's the British and not the Jewish community that will decide upon immigration into Palestine. That's very, very important. And the second thing, His Majesty's government looks with favor upon the creation of a Jewish national home in Palestine. What does in Palestine mean? Does it mean all of Palestine? Does it mean part of Palestine? 
And if it means part of Palestine, which part of Palestine? All of these things are going to present problems between the leaders of the Jewish national home and the British. But the greatest problem is going to be on the other side. I began by telling to you that the Arabs have a legitimate claim. And as Jewish immigrants pour in by the thousands, the Arabs are going to be violently and vehemently opposed to Jewish immigration. It's not that they are bad or evil. The issue is, the most important issue of them all is, whose land is this? Is it our land, Philistine? Or is it their land, Eretz Yisrael? This is a national conflict. And it begins as a national conflict early on. And then there is the other issue. It is not politically correct to say this. But it is true that there's a religious dimension to the conflict. In the eyes of Islam, Jews and Christians are dehimis. D-H-I-M-M-I. A dehimi is a protected person. In the eyes of Islam, Judaism and Christianity are legitimate but inferior religions. It means in practice that Muslims can go to pagans and say, convert to Islam or die. According to Islamic law, you cannot say that to Jews and Christians. Muhammad himself said, there is no compulsion in religion. But again, it is a sense of inferiority. Islam believes that Jews and Christians got a divinely revealed book and then distorted it. What did the Christians do with their divinely revealed book, the New Testament? They took a great prophet, Jesus, and they turned him into the Son of God, a violation of monotheism. What did the Jews do, among other things? They, gave, they made God anthropomorphic. That is, one reads even in the Siddur. That is, we say certain prayers. God is angry. His nostrils flare. God speaks. God is angry. He moves his right hand. The Muslims say, among other things, this is a violation. This is a violation of monotheism, giving human attributes to God. That's a problem. So the point in all of this is, the Jews, that the Jews have come to Jerusalem presents a problem for Muslims. On the top of the Temple Mount, there are two mosques, the Dome of the Rock and Al-Aqsa. Two beautiful mosques. I must tell you, they are absolutely beautiful. How can it be that a Dahimi people have the right to exercise sovereignty over the Temple Mount? Jerusalem is the third holiest city in Islam. For Jews, it is the first. But it's the third holiest city for Islam. How can it be? How can it be that Jews, that Dahimi people, exercise sovereignty over this Temple Mount, over land that is holy to Islam, and over Muslims? That, incidentally, is not a monopoly or a sole prerogative of Islam. When Theodor Herzl, the founder of the Zionist movement, went to Rome to get the support of the Pope, the Pope and the College of Cardinals told him, we understand where you're coming from. We understand that you have suffered so much. We understand your need for a homeland. But you killed Jesus. You killed him. How can we allow you to control Bethlehem, <coughs> Nazareth, 
All of those places that are holy to Christendom. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre. How can we allow you to do this? So there's a religious dimension there as well. And then, finally, and again a matter of debate among historians, as to which is the most important. The trick in being a good historian is not to really discern the causation of a particular event, but to determine the hierarchy of causation. What are the most important causes, and how are they related? There's another problem. Let's take a hypothetical leap. We're going to go back to the year 1900, and you're all Jews. And many of you are members of left-wing political parties. A lot of Jews don't like to hear that their grandparents and great-grandparents were on the left, were Marxists. And the hypothetical leap continues, and I am your Marxist instructor. And I say to you, comrades, this is in 1900, or 1890 for that matter, comes the revolution, we are going to free the most oppressed people in the world. And I would say to you, all right, comrades, tell me who the most oppressed people are. And since you were all Jews, remember that hypothetical leap, some who's the Jews, good answer, wrong one. Someone would say, black people. Zionism was always sympathetic to the cause of black people, always sympathetic. Wrong answer. Who are the most oppressed people in the world? Women. They are the most oppressed people in the world. And how did we men oppress them? We married them. We turned them into baby makers, sexual slaves, and domestic workers. And comes the revolution, we are going to free women. What does that mean? For those of you who have been to Israel, I assume that some of you have been to the kibbutzim. The kibbutz, the collector farm. And many, it used to be all of the kibbutzim, the children were not raised by their parents. They saw their parents for a number of hours each day, but they were raised in children's homes. You know why the kibbutz doesn't come from Brooklyn? or from Scarsdale, or from the island of Long. The kibbutz comes from Eastern Europe. It comes out of this idea that we're going to emancipate women. Women will not be saddled with raising children. And every kibbutz to this day has a communal dining room, where the people in the kibbutz eat in the dining room. So women will not be saddled in the family with preparing food and serving food. Now, why have I gone into this with you? Because this is the cultural problem. Today, as I am speaking to you, probably in Egypt, 700,000, if it has changed, I don't think it has changed dramatically, but it is beginning to change. Several hundred thousand young women, girls, will have operations performed on their clitoris on the grounds that the clitoris is the seat of female promiscuity. We are talking about a very, very patriarchal society. And here come these chalutzim. Here come these pioneers. And what they want to do is they want to shake off the old Jewish ideas. I shouldn't tell you this, and I shouldn't tell Rabbi Lichtenfeld this. They kicked me out of Hebrew school. I couldn't take it anymore. I should have stayed. I would have learned more. But even if I'd stayed they wouldn't have told me what I learned much later on. Those first they hopped from bed to bed. And they ate pork. And didn't observe the Jewish holy days. They wanted to break what they called East European Jewish superstition. 
I mention this to you because look at the cultural clash. Even though the Arabs were a vast majority in Palestine going back to 1,200 years, there were always Jews living there. In fact, at the end of the 19th century, most of the people living in Jerusalem were Jewish. The Arabs knew from Jews. They worked alongside them. They saw them. The Jews they knew had long beards. The Jews that they knew covered their women much in the same way that the Arabs covered their women. The Jews that they knew were religious Jews. Like the Arabs, they would not eat pork. They abjured their Sabbath in the rigorous or the most rigorous way. Not these chalutz or chalutz, not them. They're going to work on Saturday. And the women, the women are going to dress like the men. The women are going to shovel dung in the kibbutz. The women will do God duty. There's a cultural conflict here as well, which continues, I might add, down to the present day. When Arabs, or as sometimes they now call themselves <coughs> Palestinians in the state of Israel, what is it that you do not like about the Jews of Israel? Their women are promiscuous. How are they promiscuous? Just go to the beach of Tel Aviv and look at what they wear. So it's a national conflict, a religious conflict, and a cultural conflict. And there will be violence. Violence in 1919 against Jews, violence in 1920, and usually, I must tell you, there's something very modern about this, the violence is always triggered by events that take place at the wall. What used to be called the Wailing Wall, now the, the Western Wall, or the Kotel in Hebrew. The problem always was that historically the Muslims did not allow the Jews to pray at the wall except for certain times. But with the growth of Zionism, with self-assertiveness on the part of the Jews, the Jews go there. They blow the shofar on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. This is considered to be an invasion of the Arab patrimony, and there will be violence. 1919, 1920, 1921, the slaughter of the Jewish community of Hebron in 1929, and the Palestinian National Revolt, 36 to 39. Once again, I'm telling you, most of the Arab motivation is, and it's a legitimate motivation, a belief that the Jews are taking over their country. That's the conflict. Whose land is this? The British have the mandate. The League of Nations gives the mandate to the British for all of Palestine. And written into the mandate is the Balfour Declaration, which means that the Balfour Declaration and the Jewish national home have international sanctification. That's important. So here we are, the British have the mandate, and the British are beginning to get a little bit nervous about having that mandate. They're having second thoughts. But here is where it's important to issue a public document. That's what's important about the Balfour Declaration. This is not a secret agreement. It is made publicly. It is made public. No one can say, as they will say with other international agreements, this was signed behind closed doors, we never knew about it, and so on. What it's going to mean is that when a number of prominent <coughs> Englishmen say, we ought to withdraw from the Balfour Declaration, men like Winston Churchill and others say, we can't do it. It's a point of honor. We gave our word to the Jews, to the Zionist movement. We may reduce them, may make life difficult, but we cannot withdraw. That's very, very significant in, things, in line of what is going to happen. By 1937, the British have had it. 
we've got to do something here, they say. The way out to solve the problem is, we've looked at all of this, we've interviewed people, the Jews and the Arabs will never get along. Therefore, partition Palestine west of the River Jordan. Give some of it to the Arabs and some of it to the Jews. Let the Jews have their state in a truncated part of Palestine. Let the Arabs have their state in a truncated part of Palestine. Two independent states. The Arab world immediately rejects it. The Jews, the Zionist movement, rejects it. It's going nowhere, this so-called Peel partition plan. But then some of the Zionists have second thoughts. And again, if you were my students, I would ask you, why would the Jews have second thoughts? And the answer is because Adolf Hitler has come to power in Germany. And Jews are trying to get out and are having a difficult time getting into places. If we have a state in Palestine, we will take them in. Too late. It's over. The Peel Partition Plan disappears into what Trotsky used to call the garbage can of history. Then the war. Even Neville Chamberlain, after March of 1939, knows that the jig is up. Remember, it was Chamberlain that went to Munich. It's Chamberlain that gave to Hitler the Sudetenland. And Hitler had promised the Sudetenland, that's the western part of Czechoslovakia, which had a large German majority. Hitler had said, before the whole crisis was resolved, the Sudetenland, I will go to war if I don't get the Sudetenland, but you all should know the Sudetenland is my last territorial demand upon Europe. I will never take or ask for anything else. And Winston Chamberlain, that's Neville Chamberlain, excuse me, Neville Chamberlain believes him. Now, I'm old enough. I went to high school in the 50s. They used to show the newsreels. Some of you may have seen them. It's Neville Chamberlain arriving at the airport in London. He's waving a piece of paper, and he says, I have brought you peace in our time. And the reporters are just, remember, the British have suffered terribly in World War I. <coughs> Nobody wants another war, and Chamberlain has seemed to bring peace. And one of the reporters yells out, three cheers for the prime minister. Hip, hip, hooray, hip, hip, hooray, hip, hip, hooray. That's September 1938. March 15th, 1939, Hitler sends the German army rolling into Prague, and that's the end of Czechoslovakia. Even Neville Chamberlain knows the jig is up. Chamberlain now prepares for war. And one of the ways you prepare for war is to tie down all the loose ends in the Middle East. As a British diplomat put it, it's a pity, but it's open season on the Jews. You don't have to be a great mathematician to figure this out, but to see what the British were thinking. At that time, in 1939, there were 450,000 Jews in Palestine and 800,000 Arabs. In the country surrounding Palestine, 30 million Arabs. <coughs> if you add to that disparity, the barrels of oil that come from the Persian Gulf. The British are practicing realpolitik. You can't antagonize the Arabs. The Jews have nowhere else to go. They're not going to support the Nazis or the Italian fascists. They'll support us no matter what we do. But the Arabs, they may support the Nazis and Mussolini. So what do we do? May 1939, the British issue what is called the White Paper on Palestine. 
A white paper is an official British document. There can be a white paper on health, a white paper on medicine, a white paper on housing. This is a white paper on Palestine. This is the British withdrawal from the Balfour Declaration. Because in the white paper it says, there will be no, put it this way, for the next five years, 75,000 Jews will be allowed to enter Palestine, 15,000 each year. After five years, no more Jewish immigration into Palestine. And the white paper also says that there will be no more land sales by Arabs towards Jews. This is almost the end of the Jewish national home. This is the nadir of the Zionist experience. What's going to happen in the war? The war now becomes a seminal event, not only in the history of the world in general, but in the history of the Middle East. Number one, the leader of the Jewish community in Palestine is David Ben-Gurion. Ben-Gurion is vehemently opposed to the white paper and makes one of the most famous statements in the history of Israel, in the history of the Zionist movement. We will fight the war as if there's no white paper. We will fight the white paper as if there's no war. The call goes out to Jews in Palestine, volunteer for the British Army. Thousands upon thousands of Jewish men and women volunteer to fight for the British in the British Army. This is important given what's going to happen later. It means that thousands upon thousands of Jewish men and women will have military experience. There is even a bona fide Jewish unit, what is called the heathen Hebrew, they refer to it as the Brigada. 4,500 Jewish men in a special Jewish unit fight alongside of the British Army in the Italian campaign. This is important. Every Jewish commander-in-chief or chief of staff going down to the late 70s and the early 80s had served in one capacity or another in the British Army. It will give, when the crunch comes, <coughs> the Jews a decisive military edge. But something else happens. News of the Holocaust comes. The Jews now in the Zionist movement, the Zionist argument that needs to be a Jewish state, is going to receive incredible support. So many dead Jews, you could have saved them had there been a Jewish state willing to take them in. In the United States, I must tell you, many people do not know this, most Jews didn't give a damn about Palestine. They were a Zionist. That is, didn't make any difference to them. But with Auschwitz and with the Holocaust, the battle between anti-Zionists and Zionists in the American Jewish movement, it's over. After Auschwitz, after Life magazine publishes those pictures of Dachau and of all the Holocaust survivors, who can argue against the Jewish state in the Middle East? You need it. And Americans begin to support it. And a number of European countries support it. The fighting goes on. The Arabs attack the Jews, the Jews respond. There are Jewish extremists who in response to Arab attacks on Jewish civilians, they blow up Arab civilians as well. The British are in trouble. We are now in the post-World War II period, 1945, 1946, 1947. In 1947, the British rationed potatoes. They rationed beef. And in fact, the government in 1947 in Great Britain actually issues an edict that British newspapers are to be cut down in size. There's not enough paper. Britain can't afford to stay in Palestine. And if you're really on your toes, my friends, 
since this is a lecture on the Middle East, this is, let's say, a little conference on the Middle East, this British desire to withdraw from Palestine because it can't afford the price of staying in Palestine is reflected where else? Where in 1947? On August 15th, the British withdraw from India. One of the reasons being they can't afford to stay <coughs> in India. The same thing is operating in Palestine. And so what did the British do? They informed the new United Nations, it's all yours. You take care of Palestine. The UN promptly forms what is called UNSCAP, the United Nations Special Committee on Palestine. The members of the committee travel all over the world, particularly the Middle East, interview everybody, and they come to two conclusions, a majority conclusion and a minority conclusion. The majority conclusion echoes the Peel Partition Plan. These people will never, never get along. So you create a Jewish state and you create an Arab state. The minority position is a binational state. One country, but autonomous areas. The Security Council brings UNSCAP's recommendations to the General Assembly. On November 29th of 1947, by a vote of 33 to 13, with 10 countries abstaining, the General Assembly adopts or accepts Resolution 181, creating a Jewish state and an Arab state, two different states west of the River Jordan. The Zionist movement immediately accepts it, and the Arab world immediately rejects it. This is a terrible mistake. The argument of the Arabs, again, is a legitimate one. There are only 600,000 Jews in Palestine, and there are 1,200,000 Arabs. Who the devil are you to take away some of our land and give it to the Jews? But we've gone over the other argument, the Jewish argument, buttressed by the Holocaust. <coughs> the Jews have a claim there, too. Put another way, the genius of the Zionist movement, that's too hard, that's too, too positive a term here. The skill of the Zionist movement is that it is willing to accept half a loaf of bread. On the other side, it's all ours. Every inch of Palestine belongs to the Arabs. Nobody has the right to alienate a single inch. This I would argue, and not only would I argue it, Mahmoud Abbas, who is the president of the Palestinian Authority, has actually said publicly, the greatest mistake made by the people of Palestine is not to accept Resolution 181. Now, the argument against Resolution 181, as I just told you, but in the maps that are drawn up to divide the country, the Jews get most of the land. That's the argument that you hear. It's an accurate, it's a true argument. The Jews who are only 600,000 against 1,200,000 Arabs, they get most of the land. But what is often forgotten is that you can say they get most of the land because the Jews get the Negev. The Jews get the desert. Most of the land that the Jews get is the desert. This is one of those turning points in history. One of those turning points in history. Do you realize that had the Arabs accepted Resolution 181, there would not have been a single war between an Arab state and a Jewish state. There would not be a single refugee. And this year, 
Jews and supporters of Israel will, support, will, will celebrate the 70th anniversary of the State of Israel next year. We would also be celebrating the 70th anniversary of an independent Palestinian state. Again, I can give you the reasons. I don't have a monopoly on the truth here. I'm giving you the reasons as to why the Arabs rejected Resolution 181. From their perspective, the reasons are legitimate, but I can also tell you what the consequences are. The consequence is war. After November 29th of 1947, in early December, the British announced they are going to pull out of Palestine on May 15th of 1948. Ben-Gurion says, the day after the British pull out, I'm going to proclaim a Jewish state. From all over the Arab world comes the argument, the statement. From all over the Arab world, the day that a Jewish state is proclaimed in Palestine, we will go to war against that state. A mistake was made. This is not unique to the Middle East. In the summer of 1932, the German people went to the polls. 37.6% of them voted Nazi. Did they know that the whole thing would end in Auschwitz? Did they know that by 1945, every single inch or foot of German soil would be occupied by Allied forces and their cities and towns would be reduced to rubble? No. This is also the 100th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution, October of 1917. Those tens of thousands of men and women that went to the barricades bringing about a communist revolution, did they know that the gulag would come? Did they know that Stalin would kill maybe as many as 20 million people? Did they know that? The answer is no. When people act, they sometimes don't know what they're going to get. Maybe it's hubris on the Arab side. These are Jews. These are Dahimis. We'll throw them into the Mediterranean. They won't stand a chance. That, in fact, is what one of the great Americans of the 20th century also thought. That was the American Secretary of State, George Cather Marshall, the architect of victory in the Second World War. Marshall is now the Secretary of State, and he tells Truman, don't support Jewish statehood in Palestine. He's not an anti-Semite. What he says, the Arabs are going to clobber them. And if the Arabs start clobbering them and slaughtering them, we're going to have to go in and protect them. And American soldiers will die, and it's only two years after the Second World War where half a million American soldiers have died. That's a problem. So what's going to happen is Ben-Gurion is going to, pro he's going to proclaim a Jewish state. Now, more history than you ever wanted to know, but if you want to understand something about Israel, you can see it, it's in its origins in 48. There's a problem. You know what the problem is? Israel has a declaration of independence. Do we mention God in the declaration of independence? Do you think that those Jewish pioneers and their children and their grandchildren, they're going to thank God? for the creation of the State of Israel? No! The State of Israel is created by the Israel Defense Forces, by the bravery of the Jewish people. God had nothing to do with it. But for those who are even moderately religious, 
How can you not give God credit? How can you not mention God in the first Jewish state, decorating the first Jewish state in 2,000 years? Ben-Gurion finesses it. God is not mentioned in the Israeli Declaration of Independence. But there's a phrase, a Hebrew phrase. We give thanks to Tzur Yisrael, the rock of Israel. For secular people, the rock of Israel is the Israel Defense Forces. For religious people, the rock of Israel is God. But Ben-Gurion also does something else. Again, if you want to know something about contemporary Israel, he creates what is called the status quo. That's what it's called now. Ben-Gurion knows that Jews from all over the world are going to come into Palestine, going to come into this new Jewish state, Medinat Yisrael, literally the, the state of Israel. Many of them are religious. We've got to make sure that we can accommodate them. So how are we going to accommodate them? When we get an Israeli Air Force, or we get something called El Al, it will never fly from Friday night to Saturday night. And when we have a diplomatic corps, and the Israeli ambassador to the United States invites Americans to a dinner, it's always going to be a kosher dinner. And for those young men who want to study in the yeshivot, the higher the rabbinical institutes, and want to study Torah and Talmud, they will be exempt from military service. At that time, there were only 300 students studying in yeshivot. Today, there are tens of thousands. And today, that presents a problem. And since religious Jewish women dress very, very modestly, and the, the argument is going to be on the part of the religious people, many of the religious people, we can't allow our women to serve in the armed forces. Religious women will be given an exemption. That's part of the great internal problem within Israel. Because now we're not talking about, let's say, figuratively handfuls of people. We're talking millions of people. Some people don't even recognize the state of Israel. Jews don't recognize the state of Israel. Six years ago, students invited former Prime Minister Olmert to come to speak at Union College. Oh, the usual left-wing fruitcakes were out there protesting against him and so on. What blew the minds of my students, there were 28 young men there, all wearing yarmulkes or kippot, and all having little beards. And they were screaming at Omert, you are a traitor to the Jewish people, you are a disgrace to the Jewish people, Israel should be destroyed. These are the people from an organization known as Naturei Kata, the guardians of the gate. So there are religious people in Israel, in those areas both in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, that really will not serve in the armed forces and so on. It is a major internal problem within the state of Israel. The war comes in 48. To the surprise of everyone, the Israelis prevail. Not because they are braver. Not because they are braver. It is because they have some really good advantages. One, Despite the numerical disparity, 40 million Arabs and 650,000 Jews, the Arabs cannot trans translate their population superiority into battlefield superiority. There's a myth that the Jews in 48 were badly outnumbered. Not so. They are outnumbered, 
But I'm talking about something like 105,000 to 85,000. The Jews control the internal parts of the country. And then something that has haunted the Arabs downright to the present. The disunity on the Arab side. Everybody hates the Jews. Everybody wants to destroy the state of Israel. No argument about that. But I want, says the government of Egypt, I want the western part of Palestine. I want Gaza. King Abdul of Jordan says, I want Jerusalem. I'm not going to get involved in anything else. The government of Syria and the governments of Iraq, we want the Golan Heights. We want the northern part of Israel. <coughs> There's no coordination whatsoever on the Arab side. And moreover, there is, of course, no alternative. Now, here again we come to one of the crucial issues here. Nobody who is honest about the Arab-Israeli conflict can avoid the discussion of Palestinian refugees. Is the figure 500,000, 600,000, 750,000? Whatever it is, there are lots of Palestinian refugees. Why are they fleeing? Do the Jews force them out? The answer is yes. One has to be very honest. Probably a 250,000, about 350,000 Arabs are forced out by the Jews. And to show you, to show you what happens when you get old and die, especially if you die unfortunately, you become a saint. There is a portion in the Torah, Achrimot Kedushi. After death, you become a holy man. You know who is the major architect of the expulsion of the Arabs in the area that, where they live between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv? The man that is now turned into a saint, Yitzhak Rabin, the man who was assassinated in November of 1995. The reason being is the Jews would send convoys to supply the Jews in Jerusalem from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. The Arabs controlled the villages on top would fire down upon the Israelis and destroy whole Israeli convoys. One of the most poignant memorial, war memorials that I've ever seen, and I have seen many, is if you go along the old route from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv, you see the burned out Israeli jeeps and Israeli trucks. Because when the war is over, the Israelis leave them there as a war memorial. That's why they are expelled. And Ben-Gurion had issued an order Plan Dalit. Many Arab historians say Ben-Gurion said expel all the Arabs. That's not so. What Plan Dalit says is to local military British uh, Jewish military commanders, if you are threatened from the rear by people in villages, Arab villages, who are attacking you from the rear, you can expel them. Are there some atrocities? Yes. Benny Morris is the best Israeli historian on this period. If you want a good read, read his book, 1948. It is a dispassionate view. He stunned Israelis today when he said that in 48, a number of Israelis raped Arab women and girls. Now, there was rape on the other side as well. But the Jews who thought they were Vestal virgins, they do. There were atrocities committed on both sides here. But the war is won. And as Morris makes the point, which is really a very interesting point, the Jews would not have won if not for the support, not from the United States, 
but from the Soviet Union. Stalin, a vicious anti-Semite, who is arresting and executing Jews, a man who murdered millions of people, most of them non-Jews, he supports Israel. He provides Israel with machine guns, with artillery, and captured German aircraft. Morris is unequivocal. Without the support of the Soviet Union, Israel goes down. That leads to all interesting questions as to why Stalin does this. But, 1949, it's all over. When the armistice negotiations are... I'm sorry? That's for the question and answer period. We'll get there. In 1949, when the armistice, not the peace negotiations, take place, when the armistice lines are drawn, the United Nations representative takes a green pen and he draws the borders of Israel as against the Arab areas. That's where the term, the green line, comes from. It's not as some Jews think, on our side, everything is green, we've made the desert bloom, and they don't know how to make farm, they don't know how to farm, and so on. That's not the case. The green line is because he took a green pen and drew the borders. That would be the borders of Israel up until the Six-Day War in 1967. The 48th War is really the great turning point. For Jews and Zionists, it's a great year. This is the year of liberation. This is the year that the Jews have returned to Palestine. There is now the first Jewish state in 2,000 years. For the Arabs, it is al-Nakhba. It is the catastrophe. All those refugees. While I said to you, it is true that the Jews <coughs> did expel, most of the people, most of the Arabs who left Palestine did what any sane or rational people would do. If you are a civilian and you are in the line of fire, you get the hell out of that line of fire. It's not that the Jews were braver than the Arabs. The Arabs had a place to go to, the nearby Arab states. Unless the Jews could walk on the water of the Mediterranean or breathe under the water, there was no place for them to go. That's why the Arabs flee, and that's why the Jews stay. It is not a question of bravery. There were cases in where Arab emissaries came to the Arab villages and said, we're going to come in here, we're going to kill them. We're going to win this war, and we're going to kill the Jews, and we're going to give you their property. But get out of the way. Get out of our way. Don't clog the roads. Get out now, so when we come in, we'll have a clear field. This, too, is going to play a role in the refugee issue. We are now in 1949. We are marching to an attempt to reverse the verdict of 48. We are now in late May of 1967. In late May of 1967, Gamal Abdul Nasser, the leader of Egypt, says, we are going to destroy this cancerous growth in the Middle East. We're going to reverse the verdict of 1948. We are going to restore Arab honor. And he moves soldiers into the Sinai Desert. He prepares for war. Israel prepares for war. In retrospect, as Michael Oren has demonstrated in his great book on the Six-Day War, Nasser made a mistake. He should have launched the attack first. Was it hubris? 
Was he cautioned by the Soviet Union? Let the Jews attack, then you'll have international support? I cannot answer that question. The Jews are pissing in their boots, at least the population of Israel. The Jewish high command is telling Levi Eshkol, the Israeli prime minister, every day that you do not give us permission to launch a preemptive attack against the Arabs, we will have more casualties. Eshkol tells the Jewish, the Israeli high command, I can't move unless I get that proverbial green light from Lyndon Johnson. He waits. Israeli diplomats meet with Johnson. Do they get the proverbial green light? They say they did. They tell Eshkol, you've got it. The Israelis launch a preemptive attack. And again, this is a seminal event. It changes the course of history. The war is really over. It goes on for six days. But the war is really over by 7.30 or 8.10 in the morning of June 6th. The reason being that the Israeli Air Force, again, the commander of the Israeli Air Force is the nephew of the great Chaim Weizmann. That's Eze Weizmann. He had served as a pilot in the RAF. Remember what I told you? about thousands of Jews fighting for the British. He launches the preemptive attack, and within one hour, the air forces of Egypt and Syria and Iraq are knocked out of the skies or destroyed on the ground. Israeli armor slashes like a knife through butter in the Sinai Desert. And then, Eshkol sends a message to King Hussein of Jordan. Stay out of it. We have no claims upon you. Stay out of this. We will not go to war against you. But Nasser is telling, telling King, the young King Hussein, you can't stay out of this. I'll make sure if you stay out of it that your people will revolt against you. 60% of Jordan is Palestinian. We'll overthrow you. And then he sends a photograph. To dead, not a photo, a motion picture, a newsreel. Today, everybody talks about fake news, right? Everybody talks. This may be the ultimate in fake news. It is a motion picture of the tallest building in Tel Aviv on fire. And alongside, the caption underneath is, the Egyptian Air Force has attacked and destroyed this building as it has destroyed most of Tel Aviv. What King Hussein is not told is that newsreel is from a year earlier. <coughs> when there was a fire in Tel Aviv, in that building. So he launches an attack. Eshkol now orders the attack upon the old city of Jerusalem. Now, the most difficult thing, and you will have it in your classes, the most difficult thing for a teacher of history to do is to recreate the ethos of a period. I'll just give you an example. I'm not going to parentheses here. A parentheses, not a tangent. Some of you are, no one here is as old as I am, but some of you may remember the presidency of John Kennedy. If I had a blackboard here, and I was writing, these are the achievements of John Kennedy's administration, it wouldn't take me long. After he didn't even serve a full term. But would I be doing justice to Camelot? Would I be doing justice to that time which I remember very well? the most beautiful woman that has ever occupied the White House, and a cultured woman, 
a decent woman, a highly educated woman, and, of course, a very, very handsome, charismatic, and brilliant president. Now, I, get, I always got a kick out of uh, people saying that Bill Clinton was a magnificent orator, Barack Obama was a magnificent orator. They were probably better than John Kennedy. The advantage that Kennedy had, he had the best speechwriter in all of American history, Ted Sorensen. So listen to this. Kennedy is the first American president to invite American winners of the Nobel Prize to come to a dinner in the White House. Nobody had ever done that before. And he gets up there and says, ladies and gentlemen, this is something to this effect. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the greatest assemblage of intellect that has ever come to the White House with the possible exception, exception of the time that Thomas Jefferson dined alone. <laughs> that is a very, very good statement. So what I'm saying to you here is that the time is very, very difficult here. And we are now coming to 67. The war is over. The ethos, the period of time now, religious Jews, religious people see events, some of them, in a different way than you and I do. I mean, after all, I mean, just to, to make, give you an example, if, God forbid, there was an earthquake here and the ground swallowed us up and we were all dead, you know what they would say on CNN? There was a shift in the tectonic plates, right? That's the way you talk about an earthquake. Some religious people would say, oh, no, oh, no, they were sinners. They see events in a different way. And so if for some very religious Jews, at the end of the Six-Day War, remember, I can tell you, people, American Jews, thought that Israel was going to be destroyed. I assume you've all read <coughs> Elie Wiesel, right? And you see, some of your students read Elie Wiesel. Wiesel will say after the Six-Day War, he was in Paris. He got on the last El Al plane that was going to Tel Aviv. And he gets on the plane, and the plane is filled with Holocaust survivors who tell him what he tells us years later. We lived through one Holocaust. We were convinced that Israel would be destroyed. We are not going to live through a second Holocaust. We will die with the Israelis. And then in six days, it's all over. An incredible victory. And for some religious people, this is the hand of God. This is the dawn of redemption. This is the beginning of the messianic age. And that which God gave us can never be given back. What I'm talking to you about is the post-67 period, when Israelis will settle on the West Bank. The motivation for it, for some people, it's a religious motivation. For some who are not religious, this is the nationalist patrimony. This is our heritage. I tell my students, I'm, telling, I'm not being condescending. Believe me, I'm not. Even if you believe that the Torah, the New Testament, and the Quran are fairy tales, even if you are the most atheistic of people, I'll use the old Yiddish expression, that these are bubamites. Tales that your grandmother told you. It's all superstition and so on. 
even if you believe that. If you want to understand politics and history, you've got to be familiar with the basic scriptures of these three great monotheistic religions. Because while you may not believe, they believe. And many of them are motivated by their beliefs. If this were not history class, can you understand some of the great paintings of the Renaissance without having some basic knowledge of the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament? Of course you have to know them. Even if you don't believe them, you have to know the stories. So religious motivation and nationalist motivation, after all, what the Israelis call in Hebrew Shomron, that's Samaria. Who did... I've got to be careful here. Who does his thing in Samaria? What prophet does his thing in Samaria? It's Elijah the prophet. Elijah the prophet. Samaria is the capital of Shomron, is the capital of what used to be called the Northern Kingdom. This is as Jewish as is Tel Aviv. Even more so, because there was nothing in Tel Aviv. So some Jewish nationalists say, we've got to keep it, because it's ours. The interesting thing here is the main impetus for settling the West Bank does not come from the religious and doesn't come from the right in Israel. It comes from the left in Israel. The man who is the first one to foment, or let us say, bring about settlement in the West Bank, Jewish some in the West Bank, is one of the great heroes of the War of 48 and the pre-48 period. That's Yigal Alon, A-L-L-O-N. Alon is a man of the left. He says, for security purposes, we've got to occupy the West Bank as a barrier to another Arab attack. Whatever the motivation may have been, the Israelis occupy the West Bank and Gaza. Israel is not only a nation state, it is now an occupying power. Israel as empire. Israel rules over millions of Arabs for the first time in its history. And that leads us right up to the present. What do you do? What do you do with the West Bank? Certain things are clear. Palestinian nationalism is a valid national concept. The Palestinians have a right to a state of their own. Don't walk out of here saying that you heard a guy who was so biased that he doesn't think the Palestinians have a right to a state of their own. They do have a right to a state of their own. Some religious people, settlers say, and some non-religious settlers say, oh no, we settled this land, this is all those reasons that I just gave you less than five minutes ago. But then there's the issue of security. Now here we come. Please, I hold on to me now. I don't want to lose you on this. For those who want to hold on to the West Bank, whether it's for religious reasons, nationalist reasons, or security reasons. They've got a problem. Rabin understood the problem, and Netanyahu, in his gut, who's not a dummy, a little bit sleazy at times, but he's not a dummy. Netanyahu also understands the dilemma. If Israel holds on to the West Bank and gives citizenship to the Arabs living on the West Bank, Israel will, within a passage of time, be a democratic state and not a Jewish state. Yasser Arafat was right. 
when he said, the Jews, the Israelis have nuclear weapons, we have something that is more powerful than their nuclear weapons. We have the wombs of Arab women. He was right. In less than 50 years, if Israel incorporates the West Bank, as many Israelis want to do, Israelis have to make a choice. If we give them citizenship, we remain a democratic state, but not a Jewish state. If we don't give them citizenship, we remain a Jewish state, but not a democratic state. <coughs> That's the dilemma for those who want to hold on. For those who say, give it up, they've got a problem with security. Make no mistake here. As was said by Shelley when I, I lecture on the Holocaust, I teach the Holocaust. I'm telling you there is no difference whatsoever in the language used by Hamas and Islamic Jihad. There's no difference between what they are saying and what Hitler said. Only they say it more elegantly. Hamas says we want to create a Palestinian state between the river and the sea. And I'm telling you, you don't have to be a geographical wizard to figure this out. The river is the Jordan, the sea is the Mediterranean, and if you want to create a Palestinian state between the river and the sea, there's no room for the state of Israel. Moreover, it may come as a surprise. How many of you teach history? All right. This will certainly come as a surprise to you. Hamas says that Jews, not Zionists, were responsible for the French Revolution of 1789, the European Revolutions of 1848, the Russian Revolution of 1917, and the Jews are responsible for both world wars. Jewish doctors have concocted the AIDS virus, and they spread it throughout the Arab world. <coughs> Jews kill Arabs, take their eyes and their organs out, and use them for Israelis. It's all nonsense. The hatred is there. So for those who want to hold on to it, who are worried about security, they've got an issue. For those who want to give it back, what are you going to do about Hamas and Islamic Jihad, which won elections, meaning they have the support of large numbers of Palestinians, both in Israel and on the West Bank? What do you do? If it were me, I would never have settled in the West Bank. Dayan, Moshe Dayan, the great architect of the victory in the Six-Day War, Dayan says, we'll give it all back, all of it back. I'm waiting for a telephone call from King Hussein. Telephone call never came. You could argue quite properly. Why didn't he make the telephone call? And then again, that euphoria that I'm talking about. I remember, I was in New York City, about to come to Union College. Turn on the radio. And the broadcast <coughs> is covering the Six-Day War. And the reporter says, in Israel, basically, I'm going to turn over. I'm not going to speak. I will interpret what the Israeli announcer is speaking. And the Israeli announcer is saying almost hysterically in Hebrew, Yerushalayim Shalanu, Yerushalayim Shalanu. Jerusalem is ours. Jerusalem is ours. The wall is ours. The Jews have returned to the old city. That's the euphoria. That's what makes it difficult to give up in the immediate aftermath of the war. So what do you do now? 
do you hold on to it? For religious or nationalistic reasons, most Israelis are not religious. I'm not a devotee of Thomas Friedman, the writer for the New York Times. I think sometimes he's very condescending, and I don't like it. But one thing he's got right. For the overwhelming majority of Israelis, the issue is not God and religion. The issue is not the national patrimony, the national homeland. The issue is security. If you can guarantee the security of the state of Israel and give up the West Bank, then we'll give up the West Bank. Can you, can any government guarantee the security of Jews in the state of Israel? This is a country that's the size of New Jersey. This is a country where the divisions, the, the gaps are tremendous, they're small. You go to the Israeli city of Kfasaba, right across, within 200 yards, right across, what's across from Kfasaba? What's the Arab city across from Kfasaba? Kalkiria. to walk there. You can walk there. Who's going to guarantee that Hamas does not come in there and fire rockets from Kalkiria? Which they've done. <coughs> I don't know the answer to this. I really don't know. So there is where we are. Is there a chance for peace? Of course there's a chance for peace. But it's a difficult choice. Should I give you an idea? Fifteen years ago, a reporter from the New York Times went to the Gaza Strip. At that time, the Israelis were occupying the Gaza Strip. He got permission from the Israelis to interview Sheikh Yassin. Sheikh Yassin was the founder of Hamas. And the reporter, the reporter asked the Sheikh, listen, if the Jews leave Gaza, if the Israelis leave Gaza, and the Israelis leave the West Bank, and the Israelis leave the eastern part of Jerusalem, will you make peace with Israel? And the reporter said, they looked at me as if I was crazy. <coughs> the issue is not the occupation. The issue is the existence of the state of Israel. Does this mean that these ideas will last forever? After all, I'm a student of the Holocaust. From 1933 to 1945, the Nazis inculcated the most ferocious anti-Semitic ideology within the German people. And yet, Germany is a bastion. You want to hear one of the incredible ironies of history? The closest ally that Israel has is the United States of America. The second closest ally is Germany. The one statesman in the world, sometimes probably even more pro-Israeli than an American statesman, is Angela Merkel. Who would have dreamt this? History is not stagnant, it is fluid. So who am I to say there will never be peace between Israel and the Palestinians? There's been a mindset, a change in the mindset of Israelis. 30 years ago, I gave a lecture in Miami. And I like to think I was ahead of my time. I really was. I said to an audience of several hundred people, there will never be peace between Israel and the Palestinians unless the Palestinians have a capital in Jerusalem. There will never be peace. And, a God, and that Israel relinquished the West Bank and acquiesce in the creation of a Palestinian state. A guy gets up there, grabs the microphone, says, you are a traitor to the Jewish people, you are a disgrace to our faith. Probably most Israelis would have thought the same way. 
30 to 35 years ago. Not now. Maybe two intifadas. Most Israelis are prepared. Not all. Most Israelis, surely, if you can guarantee their security, would agree to the creation of a Palestinian state. The mindset has not changed that much on the Arab side. Hamas and Islamic Jihad, by definition, and even Mahmoud Abbas, who is a good and decent man and the best peace partner that Israel has had, when he speaks in English, he tells the Americans and the Israelis, we know that the refugees cannot go home. <coughs> he tells them that. He even says sometimes that he's from Sfat, <coughs> that Israeli city in the north, very religious city. The Arabs were a majority in Sfat, or near majority in Sfat. He flees with his family in 48. I know what it is to be a refugee, but when he speaks in Arabic, you're going to go home. No Israeli government, even one of the far left, is going to accept a large-scale return of Palestinian refugees and their descendants. So what do you do? What do you do with that? What do you do with what Hamas says? And what do you do with Sheikh Nasrallah, a very cagey individual leader of the Shiites within Lebanon? Nasrallah has said, it is a pity that all the Jews in the world have not gone to Israel. They could be destroyed in one blow. What do you do with this? How do you make peace? Are those who say that Israel is the dominant power politically and militarily, they've got to take the first step, they've got to make concessions? Are they right? They may be right. I'm not sure they're right. There will be people, Israel has to make sacrifices for peace. What country makes sacrifices for peace? In our time, maybe for some of you young enough, it's not in your time, it's before your time. What's the greatest sacrifice that the United States has made for the so-called peace? What have we done? At the time, believe it or not, it was very controversial. There were people who said we shouldn't do it. We gave up American sovereignty over the Panama Canal. Now, that's a big step. Because if we don't control the Panama Canal, and the Panama Canal gets into unfriendly hands, our economy has a serious problem. But Americans aren't going to die. If an Israeli prime minister makes a mistake or calculates incorrectly, we'll give this up in order to make peace. And attacks come from where the Israelis give that material up, that state up. What do you do? <coughs> I end by saying to you, I don't have a monopoly on the, on the truth. I really don't. These are open-ended questions. There are different points of view. Are there any questions? Mm -hmm. Can we thank you're you? Not, not, you're not my students. You're not afraid of me. You're real people. And some of you don't even know me well. I see some of my students. And again, I'm thankful that they are. Thank you, kid. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. All right, yes. And you can make, usually, I must say, there should be no statements. You want to make a statement? But again, finish before Shibus. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Scott, right? 1947. So, is it true that there were no Arab representatives on that? I mean, isn't one of the kind of the criticisms of this whole thing that they came up with this idea 
but nobody that was directly involved <coughs> had a say in how none of the great That's powers correct. either, I don't think, right? I mean, oh, they were representatives from the great powers. There were no Jews or Arabs or, or Muslims on the stuff. Right. Purposeful? I think that was done purposely, yes. Okay. Thank you. But they will interview. Unstop is going to go into maybe hundreds of people. Right. And will come to the, the majority will come to the conclusion they'll never live in peace. But they didn't talk to the people who actually, I guess my point is. They talked to people, Arabs and Jews in Palestine. Okay. They just, okay. Oh, yes, they did. Okay. They certainly did. All right. Thank you. Let me ask you, you raised the question about the Soviet Union, right? Was it you? Yes. All right. Look, here we are. Once again, the statement was the Soviet Union provides the infant state of Israel with a great deal of support. Why does Stalin do it, doing it, while at the same time, while at the same time, he is arresting the entire Yiddish-speaking intelligentsia in the Soviet Union. They're all arrested in 48, and four years later, they're all killed. This is the man who will inspire the doctor's <laughs> plot in the early 1950s. And if you want to see one of the strangest, more history than you ever wanted, this is mind-boggling. You know her as Golda Meir. Her original name, married name, was Golda Meyerson. She is sent as the Israeli ambassador to the Soviet Union in 1948. Molotov, Yatroslav Molotov, the Soviet foreign minister, makes a dinner for her in Moscow. The dinner goes along well, and then Mrs. Molotov walks over to Golda Meyerson and says, Ich bin ein jüdischer Tochter. That's Yiddish. I'm a daughter of the Jewish people. Nobody knew that Mrs. Molotov was Jewish. Poor Mrs. Molotov. She will be immediately arrested as a Zionist agent. She will spend the next five years until Stalin dies in the Gulag, while her husband will remain the foreign minister. We have the stenographic accounts of the Central Committee meeting, where Stalin denounced Mrs. Molotov. The husband didn't utter a word in her defense. He knew the rules of the game. Had he come to his wife's defense, he would have been done. She comes out. I believe the marriage continues. Who knows what sacrifices we made, right? So why does Stalin do it? We think he miscalculates. The leader of the Zionist movement, and the first prime minister of the state of Israel was David Ben-Gurion. <coughs> Ben-Gurion was the head of Mapai, the leading socialist movement or party within Israel. We believe that Stalin, who was a very provincial man, miscalculated and thought that a Jewish state led by a socialist would be a Soviet wedge into the Middle East. That's one thing. The second is, this is very hard for us to believe now, to show you how things change. In 47, 48, and 49, Israel was the darling of the European left. Europeans loved Israelis. Was it guilt over the Holocaust? Don't know. Was it the socialist aspects of Zionism, the kibbutz? Whatever it was. And what's going to happen here, again, this is a chapter in American history which is very interesting. In 46, 45, 46, 47, and 48, Communist parties and left-wing parties in Europe begin to do very well at the ballot box. When World War II is over, there's a tremendous rise in the level of expectations. 
What's the most glaring example of this? The election in Great Britain in the summer of 45. When Winston Churchill, the greatest war leader of them all, the man who led England in her finest hour, is defeated by Clement Attlee. The Labour Party wins. Now, to lighten this up, nobody coined a phrase like Winston Churchill. During the campaign, Winston Churchill is asked by a group of reporters, what do you think of your opponent, Clement Attlee? And Churchill, in an inimitable way, said, Mr. Attlee is a modest man, and he has a lot to be modest about. <laughs> but the point in all of this is, why does Labour win? Because Labour stands for dramatic change. During the war, sometimes governments encourage their people. Sometimes the people develop it themselves. When this lousy, stinking war is over, where we have suffered and we have made sacrifices, we're not going to go back to the way it was in the 1930s, with the depression and poverty and hunger. We're going to create new societies. Labour stands for socialized medicine. Labour stands for expanding the red brick universities. So working class boys and girls, or women and children, women and men, can go to the universities. Labour stands for high taxes for the rich. Labour stands for the nationalization of some of the utilities. Labour stands for new housing. Labour stands for change. And that type of feeling is felt all over Europe. That's why the communist parties in Italy and France, which had never done well, begin to receive over 30% of the vote. There's a real fear that the communists will come to the power in France, in Belgium, in the Netherlands, in Italy, not by revolution, but via the ballot box. And we think that Stalin again miscalculates. Since I told you that Israel and Zionism were the darlings of the European left, he may have thought that by supporting Israel and Zionism, he would have buttressed the support that the communist parties were receiving in Western Europe. Now, I'm old enough to remember I grew up in the Golden Land in Brooklyn. I remember going to the, to, the, to the subway station to pick up the papers that my father wanted to read. There were the, there was, it used to be called the World Telegram and Sun and the, and the Post. The Post at that time was a very good newspaper. They were advertisements from the State Department. And they were addressed to Italian-Americans, asking Italian-Americans to write letters to their Italian relatives in Italy to vote for the Christian Democratic Party rather than the Communist Party. That's why there's a Marshall Plan. We're afraid that Western Europe will go communist via the ballot box. We think that Stalin also believed it was possible to support Israel in the Zionist movement. More than that, nobody knows. It's not, I must tell you. I had lunch with Golda Meir. Let me tell you. I was not alone. There were several people, other professors that were there. I have never met as tough a woman or man in my life. This woman pissed ice. She was <laughs> tough as nails. I also never met anybody who was as ferocious a smoker. She went through three packs of cigarettes in two hours. It was unbelievable. Yet this very smart, tough, and brilliant woman in the aftermath of Israel's victory in 48, is asked precisely the question that you asked me. Why did Stalin support us? And you know what this tough woman said? 
and a brilliant woman, she said Stalin felt sorry for the Jews because of what they had suffered in World War II. Let me tell you, Stalin never felt sorry for anybody. This is a man that's going to be responsible. That's we, as I said before, maybe as many as 20 million Russians. He kills his own relatives. He felt sorry for the Jews. That's not a good answer. Are there any other questions, please? Yes. Just to follow up on that with Stalin, because I've never heard of that. Is that something that's prominent in the literature as far as um, yeah. historical Yeah. Just yeah. Mind-boggled What's in the literature is Stalin supporting the state of Israel. That's in the literature. What's in the literature without any definitiveness is, and to answer this question, why did he do it? We're not sure. The break comes in 1950 when the North Koreans crossed the 38th parallel and invited, and invaded South Korea. The United States goes to the United Nations and asks the General Assembly to approve a declaration of war, that the UN would go into the war against North Korea. Israel voted with the United States. <coughs> Ben-Gurion was a very sober socialist. He knew if you have to choose between the Soviet Union and the United States, always choose the United States. Yes, sir. That's a smaller question, and I'm not sure it's exact here. But when St. Louis left, this is just before World War II, the ship St. Louis left. Yes. And of course, they, got, they changed their mind in Cuba, and they had no reason to go and have back. But the United States and Canada refused to take. That's these right. People. Why, why, what's the reasoning behind refusing to take these people off that ship? Why did the United States and Canada, but particularly the United States, why didn't we take these refugees off? That gets us into a whole discussion of the Roosevelt administration. Let me put it to you this way. It is not true, as many Jews think, that in that period the whole world hated the Jews. That is not so. The problem for the Jews in the 1930s and during the war itself is a basic asymmetry. If, God forbid, the spirit of Adolf Hitler walked through that door, and I asked him, Herr Hitler, the British always used to call Herr Hitler, Herr Hitler, what were the primary war, what were the primary war aims of the Third Reich? You could bet your last buck, the Fuhrer would say, we wanted to make Europe Judenrein. We wanted to make Europe clean of Jews. The asymmetry is this. On the Nazi side, even when the war is going badly, the Nazis will not reduce their efforts to kill the Jews. On the Allied side, here's the asymmetry. The saving of Jews is important, but not that important. There are more important things to worry about. Winning the war, winning it quickly, not wasting air power, bombing railroad lines into the camps, and so on. That's one thing. Before the war, Roosevelt's got himself a problem. The country is virulently anti-Semitic. It's a different country, a different country. Black people know this better than anybody else. I'm doing research on Jewish involvement in the civil rights movement. The book that was meant, I have not yet completed that book. 
a Jew, an older Jew, recounts his bar mitzvah in a southern town in 1937. Do you know what the evening's entertainment was? The afternoon's entertainment, not the evening's entertainment. There's going to be a lynching of a black man. That's where they go. In the United States, when Americans are asked what they think about blacks and Jews, about blacks, it's off the charts. Almost universal hostility towards black people. Towards Jews, a lot of anti-Semitism. In one poll, about 20% of the American public said, we want in the United States an American version of the Nuremberg racial law. Roosevelt's got a problem. He's the consummate politician. Nobody wants refugees. Remember, here's what I tell my students. Why do you study history? Because you can't explain the present by the present. Everything has a past. You have to know the history. But sometimes, sometimes, not that history repeats itself. Look at your present, and you will understand a little bit about the past. Look what the issue has been for the last several years. Immigration. What's the argument against immigration? One of the arguments is that of every 10,000 Muslims that you bring in, at least five are terrorists. That's the argument in the 30s. When the argument, even of people who are not hostile to the Jews, argue out of every 100 German refugees are coming in, the Gestapo is snuck in three who are really not Jewish, and they will act as saboteurs in the United States. And remember, what's the other issue? The economy. It's always the economy, right? What did James Carville put out outside of uh, Bill Clinton's head? It's the economy, stupid. Even in the Great Recession of 2008 and 2009, the unemployment rate in our country never rose about 10, above 10%. And yet we were all convulsed by worrying about the economy and unemployment, right? In 1931, the unemployment rate in our country was almost 25%. It's true that it becomes, the situation becomes better. At no point in the 1930s, New Deal or new, no New Deal, the unemployment rate in the 1930s never goes under 12%. Nobody wants refugees. Nobody wants them. And nobody wants, because of the anti-Semitism, Jewish refugees. Roosevelt's got himself a problem. Remember, for those who either lived it or have studied it, what is Roosevelt's famous expression? He's always concerned about the forgotten man. The man, he should have said women too, but he doesn't. The, forgot, the people who are suffering under the, during the Depression. He will do nothing to squander support. Nothing to squander support. Remember, 1938. The Congress votes goes Republican. And then, again, for those of you who teach American history, Roosevelt is so desperate, he does something uncharacteristic. He almost pulls it off. He wants to pack the Supreme Court. Because the Supreme Court is declaring most of his New Deal, a good part of his New Deal legislation, unconstitutional. Is Roosevelt going to buck this anti-immigrant fever? Buck this anti-Semitism? He's not going to do it. He's not going to increase the immigration quotas. When offered by the British, give, we'll give you our quota. Give it to the Jews. 
He won't do that either. Now, I must tell you, I've always been interested in these subjects, ever since I was a kid. And I understood, yeah, viscerally, not, not, but intellectually I understood this, and I studied this. You know when it came home to me? There I am in the faculty lounge at Union in 1993, watching television, and there is Bill Clinton and Elie Wiesel, they're all dedicating the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. And Wiesel turns to Bill Clinton and says, Mr. President, I've been there, I know what this is, and you've got to do something. Wiesel had traveled to Bosnia to interview Bosnian women and girls who had been raped by the Serbs. The tears come, and of course, when I says I've been there, I know what genocide, I've been in Auschwitz, I know what this is all about. He turns to Bill Clinton, and Clinton, the tears come streaming down Clinton's eyes, Clinton's eyes, and the pundits on television, the people in the newspapers are saying, a strike against the Serbs is imminent. There will not be a strike against the Serbs for another two years. You know why? I made reference to this one. This is in 1993. Bill Clinton's going to run again in 1996. And James Carville puts outside of Democratic National Party headquarters. It's the economy, stupid. Don't squander your popularity on the Balkans. You've got to do two things. If you don't do one of them, you're dead in the water. The two things are you've got to get the economy humming and you've got to get a health plan. They screw up on the health plan, but the economy gets going. Don't squander political capital on the Balkans. He wasn't anti-Bosnian. Anti he wasn't anti-Muslim. He just wasn't going to do it. He's not going to squander the political capital. That's what's Roosevelt. He's not going to squander political capital. And if you're really on your toes, and you know your African-American history, the Jews are one of three groups in this country that are disappointed by Roosevelt. The other is the African-American community. What does the African-American African community leadership want from Roosevelt? Good for you. An anti-lynch law bill. 3,500 black men are lynched between 1880 and 1940. 500, I think, alone in 1939. Jewish representatives, liberals, vehemently support the African-American community in getting an anti-lynch law bill there will be no anti-lynch law bill. You know why? Remember, here's the difference between our time and the time of some of us who are older. I can tell you as a kid, when you turned on television on election night, the first returns came from the South, and they were all Democratic. It was the solid Democratic South. And Roosevelt is not going to tick off. It is a tribute to a great civil rights leader, the head of the Pullman Car Workers League Union, A. Philip Randolph, a great black leader, always a friend, incidentally, of the Jews. Randolph goes to Roosevelt in 1941, and he says to Roosevelt, no Jew had the nerve to say this to Roosevelt. That black man had the nerve to say it. The issue, the, the black leadership wanted two issues resolved. They wanted the integration of the armed forces. Roosevelt wouldn't give them the right time. But they also wanted an executive order from Roosevelt banning discrimination in factories that were producing weapons for the War Department. Roosevelt declined that too. And then this great leader, Randolph, 
this very courtly, gentlemanly man, in a very civil way, told Roosevelt, if you don't issue an order, an executive order banning discrimination in factories against black workers, I will convene a march on Washington, hundreds of thousands of people will come, and you will be embarrassed. Three weeks later, Roosevelt issues the executive order. The other community, incidentally, that is very disappointed is the Polish-American community. In 1943, Joseph Goebbels, a son of a bitch if there ever was one, the Nazi propaganda minister, virulent anti-Semite, gets on the radio in April of 43 and says that a German reconnaissance patrol operating in the Katyn forest near the city of Smolensk has uncovered a mass grave, thousands of Poles, Polish officers, with their uniform, are in those mass graves and they all have a bullet in the back of their neck. He then goes on to say, this he's correct in this, our forensic pathologists have determined that these men were killed in the summer of 1940. I, now how, I know how much our students don't like dates. Chronology is always boring to them. But unless you have the sense of the chronology, you have no sense of the historical flow. The forensic pathologists have determined that the Poles were killed in the summer of 1940. The Germans did not invade the Soviet Union and get to Smolensk until late June of 41. The Germans are not responsible for this. Stalin ordered the murder. We think of as many, perhaps, of 55,000 Polish officers. The NKV kills them all. And the same way, bullets in the back of the neck. The Polish-American leadership in our country goes to Rosen and says, you're going to meet with him at Yalta. You're going to meet with him before that Tehran. Raise the issue. It's raised once. And Stalin says, who the hell do you think you are? My men and my people are dying on the Eastern Front, and you're pissing away time on the Western Front. Where's your second front? It's never raised again. Jews, African-Americans, and Polish-Americans find themselves disappointed by Roosevelt. He's not anti-black. He's not anti-Semitic. He's not anti-Pole. He's a consummate politician. If it's going to cost him anything, he's just not going to do it. That's why Roosevelt doesn't allow the St. Louis to come in. Yes? Um, so um, you talked about giving land back as, you know, yes. as um, this is not a simple equation of how to give land back. So one of the things, um, so I want to talk a little bit about what you think as far as what that means to give land back. Because, it's so, you know, because we have certain parts now in the West Bank that really are suburbs of Jerusalem. And they're really, in their <coughs> mind, they're really part of Israel proper, even though they're not technically part of Israel proper. And there's also the issue um, that I want to talk, I want to talk a little bit is that um, I'm reading this book. I don't know if you've heard of um, Nir Baran's book, um, Land Without Borders. Is I've heard it. I have not read the book. Okay, so um, I've been reading parts of it. And um, he goes to the West Bank, and he, um, alter, in alternate chapters, interviews settlers, Israeli settlers, and uh, Palestinians right. in different parts. Like just, it's sort of like a travel thing, but it's also exploring the conflict. Um, and one thing that he brings out, which I had never heard before, um, is that one of the, the big disconnects between the two sides is that the Palestinians are talking from 1948, and the Jews are talking from 1967. 
And so I wanted to also talk a little bit about that. What, you know, it, how, how do you find a way... How do you find a way to divide the land? And not just divide the land, but how do you even talk on the same plane when they're talking about 1948 and being thrown out of their homes? I, and I, we're I, talking about 1967 and, you know, the Green Line and all of that. From that I, no, I tried to say some of that in the talk when I said that the Arabs continue to insist upon a return of the refugees. It's not going to be. It can't be. And I, here's one of the ironies. If there's any group of people that should understand the Palestinian yearning to return home, it is the Jews. In 1992, mark the 500th anniversary of the expulsion of the Jews from Spain, <laughs> when King Juan Carlos came to Israel to meet with Sfardim, the descendants of the Spaniards, the Spaniards who were expelled, some of those Jewish families bought the keys to their houses that their ancestors had left in 1492. So one can understand that yearning, but it cannot be. No government in Israel will allow, largely because it would destroy the state of Israel. So what do you do with that? Well, there's got to be a change in the mindset of the Palestinians. No Palestinian leader is prepared to say unequivocally to his people, you're not going home. Now, one of the ways you solve this is you have an American president, a British prime minister, a French president, and a German chancellor make two visits. You go to Ramallah, and you tell Abbas, or any leader of the Palestinian Authority, you tell him, you know what? You got to tell your people you're going. You're not going home. And you know what you can tell your people? Tell them we feel for you, but you're not going to go home. We'll give you tens of billions of dollars to create a Palestinian state, but you're not going home. Then when they finish at Ramallah, they got to get in the car and go to Jerusalem and talk to an Israeli prime minister and say to him, "You can't hold on to it." You can't hold on to it. We'll give you financial support. We'll give you military support. We'll give you political and military guarantees. But you've got to give it up. And the Palestinian prime minister can tell his people, look, I'm one of you. I want to go home. We all should go home. But the Americans won't allow it. And an Israeli prime minister can tell his people, listen, this is our land. This is where Elijah did his tricks. This is, where we, this is where we go. It's our land. But the Americans won't allow it. And the Europeans won't allow it. So we've got to give it up. Now, the fact of the matter is a good plan was worked out. In fact, it was so good, it's debatable as to whether the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, would have approved it. That's Olmert's plan, <coughs> in which nearly all of the settlements... Now, you're referring specifically to Malahud Adumim. That's the settlement not far from Jerusalem. It's not a settlement. It's about 40,000 people there. That's not going back. Now, the Israelis are not going to give it up. But they agreed to give up nearly everything else. And in fact, were willing to trade some Israeli land for the sake of that is in order to hold those settlements or those towns on the West Bank. Obviously, never. Efrat's a problem. Rabbi Riskin would very get very upset when I said this. But Afrat is further out. But Malayadumim and some of the others will stay. The plan was a good one. Nearly all of the Israeli settlements will be withdrawn. 
and the Palestinians would get compensation from the Israelis. Abbas never returned. Never took up the offer. What got Omer into trouble was he even offered the Palestinians sovereignty over the Temple Mount. That's why we said that maybe even if the Palestinians did accept it, because the Knesset would not. But it never came to that because the Palestinians didn't accept it. It's a very serious problem. The real problem is how do you divide Jerusalem? That's it. Yes, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We keep talking about the refugees, but it's all one-sided. What are right. all the Jewish refugees that were expelled? Right. She's making reference to about the one million Jews living in the Arab countries who fled the Arab countries in the aftermath, even before 47 and 48. There were the Arab word for pogrom. Pogrom is a Russian word. It means an attack, a riot. It does, it's not synonymous with an attack upon Jews, but it has come to be known as that. The Arab analog to a pogrom is a fog. <coughs> the greatest fog was in Baghdad in the early summer of 1941. Massive rape of Jewish women and girls, killing and so on. Jews were fleeing the Arab world. After 48, there were about almost a million Jews living in the Arab world. Many of most of them come to Israel, but some go to other countries as well. That's the other refugee situation, which of course she's right. Nobody talks about. Yes? I'm just curious if you could comment on the recent mandate passed by the UN for 14 out of 15 uh, security uh, members, and that was mandate 2334. Yes, December, last December. Yeah. They called for Israel to return all her illegally gotten lands going back to 1967. Right, all right. And it was approved by all 14 of the security yes. members, with the exception of yeah. the United States. And we, That's, we abstain from that. What can I tell you? The UN is historically stacked against the state of Israel. It's a problem. That's why Israel pulled out of UNESCO. Mm -hmm. Now, listen to me. We don't know each other. How can I put this? Don't get upset. <laughs> How can I say this delicately? My conscience is clear. I voted for St. Hillary in the election. <laughs> my conscience is clear. I held my nose, but I voted for her. I told the students in union that I did not think that Donald Trump was suitable to be president of the United States. But he was absolutely right in pulling out of missile. On that issue, he is right. On the issue of decertifying the agreement with Iran, that's a tougher call. <coughs> the deal was a bad deal because it didn't cover the military sites, it didn't provide for the stopping of building ballistic missiles, and it didn't prevent them from spending about $150 billion. I think it's a bad deal. The country was split over that. The parties split over that issue. But it's a deal. The United States has made an international agreement. Can it violate an agreement that it signed? Is there a way out of that? So that's why we abstained. We abstained. We usually would veto it or vote against it. We abstained because I think that administration wanted to put pressure upon the state of Israel. This gets us into contemporary politics, and it, it gets very, very sticky. And it is, I must tell you, for a speaker, 
a no-win situation. <laughs> in fact, I may have even crossed the line on that. Well, if you think of the nations and economic sanctions, and there's protocol and, you know, it's very sensitive, but on the other hand, from a global basis of private cartels who may choose to impose sanctions against the nation of Israel, <coughs> That's that a boycott of Israel is a matter of concern. Yes. Fortunately, the BDS people boycott the investigation sanctions. These people have a voice, but it's not that strong a voice. No university has pulled out of, of Israel, but it, but it is a problem. Some of the international ones have. So, so it is, it, it, there's no question that it is a problem. I, I wouldn't deny that. The other problem, of course, is we were, some of us were talking about this before, is if this were 1945, the war's over, and we were all the veterans were talking about what's going to be in the future. And I said, you know, I had this dream that 75 years from now, Jewish kids are going to be killed at a yeshiva, school buses carrying Jewish kids are going to be attacked, synagogues are going to be destroyed. You know what you would have said to me? Those damn Poles, those damn Lithuanians, those damn Ukrainians and Latvians, they haven't learned a lesson. No one would dream that the attacks would come in Marseille, Lyon, Paris, Brussels, Antwerp, and London. We are seeing a revival of anti-Semitism. There is no question about that. Now, I will tell you what you already know. You may not have seen it in this way. I have a wonderful job. You work much harder than I do. But I'm just saying this. I mean, I teach what I teach, six hours a week. The kids are so frightened they don't utter a word. There are no behavioral problems. You don't have to master the classroom. You're teaching more in a day sometimes than I'm teaching in a week. It's a great job. It's a beautiful school. Some of my colleagues drive me crazy, but it's all right. There's one bad thing, and you will see it too as you get older. Every year, those damn kids are between 17 and 22, and I'm a year older. <laughs> the things that were important to me, they mean nothing to them. Nothing. The Vietnam War, ancient history. What they don't know, but they know of, is 9-11. That they know. The Jewish kids know nothing. The non-Jewish kids know nothing. The African-American kids, when I talk to them in certain aspects, what I, some of the things that I said to you about African-Americans, they don't know that either. So what's happening here is people don't remember it. They're not afraid of it. But now I must tell you something else. The problem that many of us confront in the universities come not from the right but from the left. These right-wing jackasses, these neo-Nazis, these Ku Klux Klans, people, they're a marginal group in American society. I tell you, there's not a university or college campus in this country that has a chapter of the KKK or of the, the neo-Nazi movement. But if I give up hope and give a speech defending Israel, or if I bring in a speaker who says a decent, one decent word about Israel, he will be protested 
and his speech will be disrupted not by the right, but by the left. At Berkeley, it's the left that is disrupting free speech, not the right. And I must tell you, if there's no free speech in the academy, we are done. The academy should be the last place. I know there are certain times when you have to limit free speech, but that's a slippery slope, a very, very slippery slope. It's more than McCarthy. Yeah. It's, it's just a very, if you limit people on, from one point of view, it's not a giant step to go down and limit people who really are fairly moderate. We live, the academy, at least, certainly the academy, but society is at large, should be a marketplace of ideas. Everything should be said. You don't want to go, don't go. You want to protest, protest, but don't disrupt. So we have a problem. After Auschwitz, we became <coughs> fools if we ignored the danger of anti-Semitism. But you know what? The war's over. There are other threats from other places. It's not only the right that one has to be worried about. It's particularly the extremists on the left. Any other questions, my friends? Yes. I I don't know if, if you got into it as much, but maybe you could explain a little bit more about why there wasn't either a push or why uh, a, uh, an Arab state didn't happen in uh, 1947. Why wasn't an Arab state created? The answer was, one, the Arab world rejected the creation of an Arab state. Uh, that is the state that was provided by Resolution 181. Yeah. It believed that it would have the entire land of Palestine. And then when it lost the war, Jordan held on to what today is called the West Bank. Jordan annexed the West Bank. That annexation was never recognized by the international community. The only country in the world that recognized the annexation by Jordan of the West Bank was Pakistan. So that's why there was no Palestinian state. Where was it supposed to, it was just supposed to be the, the West Bank? The West Bank and parts of what is today Israel as well. Oh, okay. There were some different areas. Okay. It's a tragedy. Right. It is an absolute, there would not have been war, refugees, and so on. Don't be afraid of me. <laughs> if there's anybody that wants to say a contrary point of view, you do it. You do it. Yes. I'm not afraid of Oh, <laughs> uh, she one of my best students, absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. I have one that is like really controversial that yeah. I just don't really have the background to understand, so I'm going to ask it. Why has ISIS stayed out of Israel? Why has ISIS stayed out of Israel? Because ISIS's main target is control of the Arab world. Once we get control of the Arab world, the ISIS people said, then we'll deal with Israel. In the eyes of ISIS, the rulers of the Arab countries were stooges, American stooges, traitors to the Arab people. Get rid of them first, then we'll deal with the Jews. To form the new caliphate first. I'm sorry? To form the new caliphate first. 
to form the new caliphate. Did Raqqa fall today? I'm sorry? Raqqa fall today? I think Raqqa did fall today. Yeah. ISIS is, is done. ISIS is done, at least as a formidable entity within the Middle East. Where it is not done is the appeal that some ISIS, that ISIS has to some, some people in other countries who will carry out terrorist attacks. Here I must tell you, Barack Obama was right. He really was, in the sense that we don't have to get massively involved as a nation. We have to get someone involved, but the Iraqis will handle it. And the Syrians, in one fashion or another, will handle it. And they have right. They've done it. President Obama on that issue was, was correct. Yes? Why do you think it's so difficult to have full, nuanced conversation about this topic? Um, I grew up in Israel. We could have five different parties around the dinner table, or even when I go visit, even this past year, we can be on the left or right, we can be religious or secular, we can still talk to each other. Why is it so much more difficult in the States, especially amongst Jews, to have that nuanced conversation? Why is it difficult among Jews here to have that conversation? About Israel. <laughs> I mean, ne never mind even talking about Ju yeah. talking with the left, <laughs> just even amongst the Jews. That's a very good question. <laughs> and the answer is, the Israelis are used to a pluralistic view of the Middle East. It's a strength of Israel and it's a weakness of Israel. In the sense, she says, you can have five different people probably all voting for five different political parties. That's why there's never been a majority government in Israel. Every government has always been a coalition government. And you don't have to have, be a wizard of political science to figure this out. Coalition governments are terribly incompetent and ineffective. You can't please everybody in a coalition. In the case of American Jews, we are not accustomed to that. The American Jewish community, ever since 48, has been fervently pro-Israeli, pro-Zionist, and has defined Zionism in a certain way. Uh, there is now a plurality of views in the American Jewish community. People take this very, very seriously. Uh, more than that, I cannot take. People take it so seriously that they, uh, I wouldn't say families split up, but I can tell you that there's a great deal of tension. And the tension was manifest most blatantly when Prime Minister Netanyahu came before the American Congress to speak against the the plan, the, the nuclear plan with Iran. Anybody who works for federations, anybody who works in any official capacity in the Jewish community will tell you that the reverberations from that for that were quite tremendous. Also, we are a two-party country, and loyalty to party is tremendous. And probably no, no group has been more loyal to the Democratic Party with a possible section of African-Americans. No group in this country has been more loyal to the Democratic Party than the Jews. I'm going to give you a statement. It's going to sound like a racist statement. It is not a racist statement. It was uttered by a Republican committee man in Boston on election night, on an election night. He looked at the returns coming in from the Jewish precincts, and he said, these damn Jews, they look like Episcopalians, and they vote like Puerto Ricans. 
You understand what he's saying? Jews don't vote their class interests. If they did, they would all be Republicans. With all of the tension, supposed tension between the American Jewish community and President Obama, 79 to 80% of American Jews voted for Barack Obama. The loyalty to the Democratic Party <coughs> and its positions, that's what you are seeing. And that's why there's not that diversity of opinion. One last question. Yes. My, uh, my Republican friends have nothing good, and I mean nothing good, to say about Obama's relationship with Israel. And I was wondering what your thoughts are about that. Was he as bad as... No. Know, I mean, I feel I keep hearing that he may, he may be walking the side door, blah, blah, blah. My brother-in-law says, yeah, but nobody gave Israel more military That's correct. money than Obama. So oh, what, what is the story? All right, what is the story? <laughs> now, the honest answer is, how the devil do I know what the real story is? <laughs> That's the honest answer. But this is what I will tell you. What the Israelis say, that when President Obama was the president, more aid flowed to Israel than ever before. There were never any complaints from the Israeli military about President Obama. No complaints at all. We got everything that we wanted, and even more so. The problem was twofold. One, he had a bad relationship with Prime Minister Netanyahu. Was it Netanyahu's fault? To a certain extent, there is probably yes. But whether it was Obama's fault, whether it was Netanyahu's fault or not, you don't treat the leader of an allied country, a close allied country, in the way supposedly that President Obama treated Netanyahu. You just don't do that. And then some of the things that were said by President Obama about Israel, criticism of the government's policies, the abstaining from the vote that she was talking about. Those of this style is important. And that was what some people have as a problem with President Obama. But when it came to military assistance, Obama was superb. When it came to the sharing of intelligence, Obama was superb. It was the style, the way he treated Netanyahu, some of the things that he said about Israel. And his adamant talk about going to the pre-June 67 lines. Everybody has forgotten. Now, probably you don't remember this. In the aftermath of the Six-Day War, the United Nations Security Council adopted Resolution 242. And that resolution said that Israel had to withdraw from occupied areas. Now, to show you how semantics come in here, the framers of that resolution, 242, were Arthur Goldberg, the American representative of the UN, and a British, the British ambassador. <coughs> I'll say it again. Israel should withdraw, must withdraw, from occupied territories. What's left out of that? And they deliberately left it out. And in diplomatic jargon, that omission is important. 
They deliberately left out the definite article. There were those who said the resolution should say Israel should withdraw from the territories occupied in 67. By leaving out the definite article, it meant that they did not have to, by implication, they did not have to abandon all of the territories, but some of the territories. Everybody's forgotten about Resolution 242. For years after the Six Day War, into the 70s and the 1980s, people said Resolution 242 will be the basis of peace. But now it's going back to the lines before June, before the Six Day War. And that means that the Israelis have to give up the eastern part of Jerusalem and other places that will be very difficult for Israel to get. <coughs> and since President Obama hopped on that, that presented a problem. President Bush in the Rose Garden, the second President Bush, wrote a letter to the Israelis saying that there were certain things, facts that had to be accepted, facts on the ground, implying that Israel could hold on to some of the territories that had been gotten in the Six-Day War. That has been forgotten. Style is important. Very, very important in politics, as we are seeing at the present time. Okay. Can I ask one little question? Yes, for sure. <laughs> Gaza. <clears throat> so I want to make sure the teachers understand that uh, Sharon gave Gaza back to the Palestinians. So Sharon gives Gaza back to the Palestinians. There's a huge war in 2014 with 2,400 rockets. The media is portraying Israel very badly. and. Um, what do you think, and our partnership region for this federation is Eshkol, part of it is on the Gaza border. What do you think the future, right now, since Abbas and Hamas are chatting, will be? All right. Let me show you. She's asking about Gaza. I'll, I'll deal with that second part. There was a proposal in the early years of this century, the 21st century, by British philanthropists. If the Israelis withdraw <laughs> from Gaza, we will pour billions of dollars into Gaza, and we will make Gaza a showplace. And many Israelis, this is the argument of Gaza first, withdraw from Gaza, let Gaza become a blooming place, a blossoming place. This will convince the Palestinians that peace is in their, in their interest. What happened was the Israelis withdrew from Gaza, and from precisely the places the Israelis withdrew from. Hamas moved in and fired rockets against Israel. For Israelis, rightly or wrongly, many Israelis are convinced this is what will happen if Israel withdraws from parts of the West Bank. Now, what does it mean, this rapprochement, between Fatah and the Palestinian Authority on the one hand and Hamas on the other? Again, the honest answer is we don't know. There are lots of things that have to be worked out, and one of them is going to have to be, will Hamas, Fatah under Abbas, is pledged to negotiate with Israel and recognize Israel, recognize the state of Israel. The sticking point between Netanyahu and Abbas is whether it should, Israel should be recognized as a Jewish state. Abbas says no, Netanyahu says there will be no agreement. Hamas says there should never be an agreement. 
Israel must be destroyed. We must have a Palestinian state between the river and the sea. So now that Hamas is joined with Fatah and the Palestinian Authority, will it abandon its desire to destroy the state of Israel? And will it abandon the shelling of rockets, that is shelling, shelling Israel with rockets? I don't know. That's one of the questions about this. We don't know what the future is going to bring. I think it's important people to realize my uncle was one of the founders of the Kibbutzim in the Shkolrivim, and he lived in Nirim. Nirim, if that wall is defense of the Kibbutz, and this room and one more like it, the next on the other side of the wall is the field, then comes Hanunas. That's defense. Okay? The length of this room twice over between the dining room and Hanunas. That's how small Israel is. <laughs> the distances are very, very short. I, I, again, <clears throat> is there are people who will say, is Netanyahu prepared to make peace? Netanyahu <clears throat> is the son of the father. The father died last two years ago, I think. He's 102 years old. One of the great historians of the Spanish Inquisition. If you've got nothing to do, you can read his 1,000-page book. It's very good, and it reads very well. He wrote very, very well. But he was a revisionist. He was an old-line revisionist who believed that the Jews should have not only the West Bank of the Jordan, but the Eastern Bank as well. He was the secretary to the most controversial Zionist in all of Jewish history, Vladimir Jabotinsky. Can Netanyahu break with this? The answer is, I think, yes. But it has been very, very hard for him. And because of what we were talking about before, he's got a center-right-wing coalition in the government. And some of those right-wingers in his government won't give up an inch. He is a consummate politician, Netanyahu. It remains to be seen whether he can be a great politician. Why I call him a consummate politician, he remains in power. All these charges, all these things, all this opposition, he's still the prime minister. And in fact, you take all of his terms as prime minister together, he has served as prime minister longer than anybody in the history of Israel. But he's not been able to break with that right-wing coalition. And it's not only over the issue of what to give up and what to hold on to. Remember I began the discussion, I told you about the conflict, the tensions between the religious and the secular? This involves billions of dollars where the religious people get for their schools, get the exemptions. Most Israelis are opposed to that because they carry the burden. Their sons and daughters go into the military. Most of those people study in yeshivot or in schools where there are no secular subjects. So they're on the dole. They have no skills. But because it's a coalition government, and no Israeli prime minister is able to cobble together a coalition government without including the religious parties, you've got to pay them off. A great politician would probably try to work out a deal with center and center left political parties in Israel throwing the right wing out into the, out into the cold, and then move about changing. But again, remember what's the old expression, being trifling. It takes two to tangle. 
right? Even if there was the most, nobody was more dovish than Omert. Omert was giving away a lot. And there was no reciprocity on the Palestinian side. Palestinian leaders have their own problems. They were bullet away from oblivion. Look, in Israel, Rabin was killed by a rabid nationalist, a man of the right. I just gave a lecture on 1947 in history, and I spoke about the partition of India. Mahatma Gandhi, that great and decent man, is assassinated in January of 1948 by a Hindu nationalist. It's not merely, as she says, that around the kitchen table you can discuss all things and there's a lot of fervor and so on. It's happened in Israel with Rabin, but that's the exception. In the Arab world, if you embark upon certain policies, you're dead in the water. And that's any Arab leader that talks about negotiating with Israel has to worry about that as well. Great leaders are ones who are prepared to spit in the face of history, take on the risks that confront them personally, and move ahead. Not clear if such people exist today in the Middle East. Thank you very much for coming.